So we're having a chat about the the moral outrage of the Telegraph putting my quote on the front page of their paper, and even even making the text larger. They they like really spotlight the quote, and they're not attributing it to me, just leaving it, just kind of hacking there. Well, Ma- Matthew. I, I don't know if you've heard of a um, a certain free marketeer by the name of Ronald Reagan, but he, I believe, made the point that it's not so much about who the idea is attributed to as it is about the idea getting out there in the first place. So, you know, really, the the fact that your words are on there and the idea was on that front page should be its own reward. Of course, the, the, the Ronald Reagan quote, which I think was on his desk in, in the White House, something like, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, um, you could, so you can achieve a lot if, if you don't care who gets the credit. But of course, that's Reagan telling people to let Reagan take the credit for their achievements. It's actually more of a power move. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adamsmith Institute's podcast. My name is Ethi Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, now Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Dr. Michael Turner, the Head of Research at CT Group RSR and a Fellow of the ASI. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing the ongoing shortages of fuel and gas, Labour Party conference, and winning housing reform. There has been a lot of chaos at petrol stations this week after reports emerged that some stations were not getting fuel deliveries. Uh, this comes among concern that HGV driver shortages could ruin Christmas. Uh, and that doesn't sound particularly great to me. Uh, to start off with, Matthew, are there actually petrol shortages we need to worry about here? Or is this mainly a, a kind of media spin operation here? Look, to start off with, I think we have to acknowledge that perhaps we do need to ruin Christmas. Um, somebody has to be the Grinch here. Somebody has to be the Grinch. I mean, it seems like the government's insistence this week that there was there weren't shortages of fuel as people were getting up in inordinate hours and lining up for fuel. And, and even just, you know, down the street from me, I walked past a, a fuel station that, you know, said no fuel left. It seems a bit absurd to say there isn't a full sh- fuel shortage, even if there isn't it, technically true, there isn't a shortage of fuel in the country. There's clearly a shortage of fuel at petrol stations where where people actually want to buy it. So it doesn't seem like it's it's a particularly viable line. Now I get it that part of what's calling, causing the fuel crisis is a panic. So you want people to stop panicking. You want them to say, actually, it's going to all be okay. But at an individual level, it's perfectly rational if you think that there's going to be shortages of fuel and you think everyone else thinks there's going to be shortages of fuel to go. Um, fill up and that's what leads to the shortage of fuel it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy it's kind of like a, a bank run you know what, what leads to a, a shortage of money in the bank a bank run a bank run leads to a bank run so it's it's the kind of the the, the rumors and the panic of it are, are what causes the shortage i think it's kind of similar to what we saw last march with toilet rolls and canned tuna and michael on, on terms of things like fuel crisis and people with long queues outside obviously getting quite irate do you think that there tends to be a recognition of, or an understanding that this is a, a kind of fault of our fellow members of the public or the media? Or do you think that people do tend to blame the uh, the government of the day when it comes to these issues for not being more prepared? And I guess this, we'll get into the actual causes behind this in a minute. But just in terms of people's perception, where do you see? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I definitely think in this case, there's actually some polling that's been released out today or overnight that shows that most people actually blame the media for this. Yeah, uh, I think there was a YouGov poll that really came out and about half people said that uh, the media was mainly to blame um, for the crisis. And actually, even after that, 
um, they equally blame themselves compared to the government. So I think the honest answer is is that I, th- I thought we should be kind of used to this by now. We had the Lou, Lou Rollgates and stuff like that, and we've had all these um, shortages from before. Uh, you know, I would have thought that we'd um, kind of understood a better way to kind of, you know, deal with the supply chain problems we get. But look, I think what this actually is, to me, is um, a broader context of the consequences of COVID, the unintended consequences of COVID. I mean, there's been some interesting results out um, from, I think, uh, Kate Andrews from The Spectator, who's basically showed that there's been a shortage of qualified lorry drivers, about 26,000 over the last 18 months. Lorry drivers have not qualified over the period because of COVID. They've not been able to take a test. So, you know, one of the reasons why we're not be able to have enough fuel in the pumps, although there's plenty of fuel there, is because there's not actually not enough lorry drivers. So, you know, what are the other consequences that are potentially waiting for us because of the restriction on our freedoms, for instance? You know, it, is there going to be problems to do with further down the line to do with education? You know, what are the problems that we can th- uh, think about for cancer screening, for instance, and for, you know, our wider relationships or for industries such as hospitality and what have you? So, you know, look, actually, there are many, many more things like the petrol at the pumps shortage uh, crisis that are awaiting us. Um, and it just goes to show you, before you make these big decisions to restrict people's freedoms, you've got to start thinking a little bit uh, about uh, what the potential consequences are down the line. These are big decisions. The other thing I would say is it's a great advert for stability. You know, um, this is a relatively small and isolated event. You know, people are calling it kind of a perfect storm of events that are coming together. But, you know, actually, we're kind of getting too quick to be able to kind of make major decisions uh, that kind of fundamentally kind of change society without properly thinking about them. So, you know, if anything, I think this is um, think first uh, sort of advice um, that's come from this before we kind of make you know, these major changes to society. Look, while I wouldn't disagree with Michael's analysis there that, that a lot of this does link back to issues related to COVID, I would think the government's getting a bit of a free free ride here and, and they're getting less blame in some senses than they deserve. It's literally shortages around, there's, there's energy prices going up, We've got kind of all these questions about the state of the economy. We've got inflationary pressures. You would expect the government to be getting some blame for all, the, all this mayhem and chaos. And even though it's not their fault that a lot of HGV drivers left the industry during COVID, it is their fault that they haven't, there's such a huge backlog of DVLA with, with respect to training more drivers. It is their fault that they've taken so long um, to improve the, the, I'm sure Daniel can speak this a lot more than I can, but the, the way the immigration system is working to approve more people to um, come into the country to, to fill the skills gap, something a lever the government can control. Now, it's also an issue that they've, they've taken so long to look at some of the issues around HIV driver regulation that have pushed a lot of people out of the industry, just this constant constant having to, to retrain, constant um, limits on their ability to drive, the speed limits on how fast they can drive. There's all there's all these kind of micro-regulatory issues the government has put in place and contributed to this crisis that I and actually do deserve some blame for. So although it's, it's true in a, in a perhaps a narrow sense that the, the media sparked some panic um, and that the panic became a self-fulfilling prophecy, there was a genuine shortage in the first instance. Um, and there, there is a, a broader shortage of HIV drivers that you're seeing right across the economy. Um, and it, it seems like the, the government, although they're not fully responsible for this, they, they do take some blame and they do take some blame for not putting in place um, policies that could have alleviated that shortage much sooner because we've been talking about this for, for weeks now. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you there. I think that they are getting off rather lightly in terms of some of the 
policy failures here. So, I mean, some of the measures that they've taken around um, the, the responses on things like HGV driver licenses, the process for getting those approved being sped up, etc., I think is welcome. Uh, or the, one of the things that they did about deploying this reserve fleet of, uh, of fuel tankers that the Department for Business Energy and Industrial Strategy Bays uh, keeps for these sort of emergencies. I saw a really interesting uh, government audit document from 2017 yesterday that basically said we're going to scrap these in 2020. So in fact, the only reason we still have these is because COVID kind of got in the way of us scrapping these uh, these this reserve fleet of tankers. So it kind of shows an importance in in maybe thinking a bit harder about those sort of resilience decisions when it uh, crisis planning when it comes to situations like this on the the immigration point i think that you know if if you gov in the poll that michael mentioned said uh, how much do you think this is a result of brexit do, or do you think this is a result of brexit yes or no you might well get actually a kind of 48 52 split um if you, if you ran that particular poll because it does seem to be a very popular and convenient explanation for those who were on the uh the remain side of that particular debate and i think it's it is as you say over-egged. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of European HGV drivers returned to Europe as a result of COVID as much as they did as a result of Brexit, if not significantly more so. That said, and, and you alluded to this in your comments, Matthew, there is an issue here when it comes to free movement versus the immigration system we have now. Now, obviously, there are, are many perceived disadvantages to, to free movement. I don't want to kind of get into that whole debate, although for kind of disclosure, I, I was and still am in favour of free movement with uh, the EU. The problem is that that's the closest you're going to get to a kind of a market system for the labour market in terms of firms being able to respond quickly uh, and effectively when it comes to potential labour shortages that they foresee, um, and, and especially in a timely manner. At the end of the day, a lot of this HGV driver shortage crisis, it is temporary, you know, as people... Um, are trained and come into the system um, and you know the kind of recognition that maybe wages need to go up in this sector spreads across society we are going to actually get uh, a kind of response to this the problem is that the speed of it is slowed down because it, the kind of requirements for for visas or at least previously uh, in this area were tightened up now the government's kind of acknowledged that this is an issue when it comes to offering these temporary visas to 5,000 foreign fuel tanker and I think food lorry drivers as well in a, a desperate bid to save Christmas. Um, it's been criticised as not being enough by some of the industry organisations, but it's certainly, I think, a, a good move. Interestingly as well, you do tend to get this on the uh, the, the pro-immigration side of this particular debate, tend to actually be quite anti some of these temporary visa offerings because... You know, because it's not freedom of movement, then it's there. And because the Tories are doing it, it's therefore a terrible thing. I definitely disagree with them there. I think it's very good that the government has done this. Um, but I guess, like, I kind of alluded to this in thinking, I, I at least see this as a, a temporary crisis. But Matthew, do you think that this is actually temporary? Or do you think, you know, how, how long is this likely to last? Are we going to be queuing up at the pumps and we're we going to have petrol rationing at some petrol stations for, for the next few months? Or is the end potentially in sight here? Look, there's been some murmurings from the industry that it seems like the, the, the heat of the crisis has calmed down a bit. Um, and, and the government keeps in claiming, well, at some point, everyone's going to have their, their tanks filled up um, and therefore there's, there's going to be less of a rush and everyone should calm down. I mean, it's possible that happens at some point combined with, with you know, in, in 
improving delivery. So particularly at the start of COVID, the, the way they sorted out a lot of the shortages in supermarkets was to reduce the number of lines that they were providing each supermarket, making sure that there was more quantity so that they ensured that as a visual effect, all the shelves are always filled up, even if there were fewer fewer variety of different things on the shelves. It's kind of harder to do with fuel. It's harder to um, create the sense in which um, it, it, a station is filled up. You've actually got to have it filled up. You've got to get a sense of confidence that it is filled up so that even if your heart, you, you're just going to get people going back to their usual routines when it comes to filling up their fuel because that's the, the way the, the system's set up so that, that whenever they go past, they always know that there's going to be fuel. But it's it's when they start seeing signs that there's limited amounts of fuel, they're just going to keep them lining up. Even if their uh, tank's quarter full or half full or three quarters full, it doesn't really matter. They're just going to try and fill it up completely every time they can, which I think it actually makes it a, a relatively, in, until there's like a sense of confidence it's about the supply chain, you, you're going to keep on having these issues. So I suspect this this could go on for quite a while, but it is harder to find fuel, even if we're, the, the height of the crisis is, is gone. Um, I'm not confident it will entirely disappear uh, in the in the short run. I mean, I hope it does, but I, I don't think we can be certain it does just because the psychology of it will be hanging around for a little while. Because um, unlike loo rolls, you could just kind of just buy up a, a bunch of loo rolls. You have your stock with fuel. It's just something you constantly need. You, you can't really um, hoard it. Uh, unless you're one of those crazy people, you know, filling up um, cans of fuel, it's that the, the psychology seems much harder to, to, to bang, bang down and, and calm everyone down. So it could take a little bit of time. Well, thankfully, as two kind of metro lib Londoners who I believe don't drive, at least we're not quite as affected by this, uh, this particular issue. But uh, the other shortage that I think is affecting everyone at the moment and that is being talked about is uh, the soaring wholesale gas prices, which are now up 250% since the start of the year. And the, the knock-on effect of this, of course, well publicises crippling various British energy firms and leaving households up and down the country facing the prospect of a quite significant rise in the cost of energy. I just got a letter through my mailbox the other day talking about how my bills are going up. So uh, why are my energy prices so goddamn high matthew and uh what can we what can we do about it what's causing the price of gas to skyrocket yeah but that's really a, a confluence of of factors that, that have all come together at precisely the same moment so uh, to start with um it's not a uk exclusive issue so you've, you've got shortages of gas um right across uh europe um partly as a result of the fact that during COVID, it's another kind of result of COVID here, um, there was a reduction in production and the, the, there's been an increase as we're getting back to normal, but the production hasn't actually kept up to that. There's also some concern that, that Russia has been holding back on production as well. Um, so you've got the, the kind of rising price across Europe. And then in the UK specifically, you've got uh, one of the major interlinkages with the EU, one, one to France, that's been down because of um, maintenance issues. Uh, and on top of that, the fact that uh, the UK's energy grid is increasingly dependent on solar and wind, um, and it hasn't been as windy or as sunny. And as a result, we haven't that's been contributing a lot less to the power grid. So therefore, we become more dependent on the backup, which is gas, and the gas price has gone up because it's just gone up everywhere. So as a result, the cost of energy has gone up. We've seen a, the, the collapse of a whole bunch of, of smaller energy companies that that um, had, didn't have insurance of this particular situation um, as the prices have gone up. We've also got an energy price cap, which means the companies can't increase the prices as the, the cost of energy is changing. It's, it's a, not a dynamic system. Uh, we haven't invested properly in, in nuclear energy that could provide backup um, low carbon energy. So this is the, this is the classic issue that, that we've been warned about, and I think rightfully so, when it comes to having a, a grid that's dependent on nuclear energy, so a grid that's increasingly dependent on renewable energy, what happens when the wind isn't blowing and, and the sun isn't shining? Um, 
you get you get shortages. You can get shortages of energy, and it's it's not as bad as in the seventies. We're not we're not about to go back to. Let's hope we're not about to go back to three day work weeks. But it's it seems like this is such an obvious problem, uh, and it's been pointed out. Was the CPS had a good paper on this a few years ago? We've we've had a bunch of blogs on it. Tim Ambler pointed this out. We just you just need the backup energy. Um, you need the baseload energy from stable sources, and and energy and wind is great, but not all the time. So it it, it even if it is cheap on the marginal, it's you get these larger costs in the longer run. Um, if your backup is gas. Another one, of course, is is fracking, which we're banned in the UK, so we don't have as much of domestic supplies of gas as, as you could have. So every, everything going wrong, basically, is, is the answer to that question, yeah. Daniel. Yeah, do you, do you see, Michael, a kind of similar situation to the petrol shortages here, where it seems like the government's getting off quite lightly for what is at least in part a result of their own various policy failures? Matthew's mentioned a few of them. Fracking's the one that really gets my goat. I don't know about you. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, certainly. I think while mine is nuclear, I think that you can't really call yourself green unless you kind of support nuclear, in my view. But um, and I think on this issue, you know, wh- where the petrol issue, you know, people will probably forgive the government because they do think it's a bit of spin and they've kind of been through it before with COVID. I, I do think this is where, you know, reality rubs up against rhetoric, you know, on, on energy prices. Certainly, you know, living in Australia, reliability of supply is the number one issue when it comes to energy and it will be you know obviously the same kind of everywhere so you know most people don't really care what flavor of energy that they get coming down whether it's come from wind whether it's come from solar whether it's come from nuclear what the most important thing is is they have energy and they have limited supply to energy at a price which is kind of affordable right so energy is energy so i think uh, with this it's smacks of mismanagement you know before kind of coming on the show I was reminded of some focus groups I did kind of in 2017 um, where the debate then was energy and capping the price of energy and what have you and it will kind of continue to come and I think that you know this crisis now is symptomatic of um, things that are likely to come with the transition of uh, you know from more traditional kind of carbon intensive energy supply to you know trying to strive to achieve net zero and you know it's a it's a pollster's nightmare trying to um, gauge kind of accurate public opinion on this sometimes because the reality is that most people want their energy to be kind of at zero but they're unaware of the the consequences of kind of doing so so um, you kind of have to test all of these specific things the potential impacts on people's lives and material impacts on people's lives make a much bigger difference to opinion down the line and they can be it can be a real deadly move for policymakers if they just rush into um, making hasty decisions that then kind of cost people later on um, you know when in their utility bills we see it over here you know utility bills uh, is a major part of politics in Australia and you know it's becoming ever increasingly so in the UK well, I think on that note, we will move on to the second topic for discussion today, which is the Labour Party conference that has been taking place in Brighton. Down in coastal Brighton, sunshine turned to rain as the Labour Party conference got off to a rocky start. Disagreements on trans rights, uh, ministerial resignation, debates on the morality of calling Tories scum and members interrupting a leader's speech all highlight the factitious internal debates that still characterise the Labour Party. Um, I, I suppose the, the kind of first sense that comes to me, uh, and might, might start with you here, Dan, what, what do you think we've learned about Labour and, and Keir Starmer from conference? Does it seem like he's, he's very much signalling moving in the moderate direction, and do we buy that? 
I think he's certainly signalling it, and the rhetoric of his speech made that very clear. The kind of strong economy message being very important in the speech, I think, was, was the perfect example of that. Just Labour actually focusing on the importance of having a strong economy and the kind of implication of that, I think, is fairly clearly economic growth, which is, you know, just was not talked about or prioritised in the Corbyn era at all. Um, it, it was barely mentioned. It wasn't a priority. Uh, so that's, for me, a great mark of moving more towards the centre. Uh, now, of course, you know, you, you've got to contrast some of the, the centrist moves with you know, things like the, the Green New Deal, etc., which, I mean, maybe in the US uh, can be considered um, very, very on the left. Here, it, it's more of a debate about whether that's a kind of centre-left idea or not. Uh, some of the various things on on national insurance hikes and opposing them, I think, were very clearly a pitch to towards the centre and actually trying to position Labour as the party of low tax on working people, which was which makes for a lovely change, something that's uh, cheered me up a lot. Uh, and I, I think the other thing we learned is, is that Keir is actually willing to, to kind of take on these battles. You know, he, he was getting heckled throughout his whole speech. Um, and I think he probably expected to be, to be honest. I don't think that surprised him very much. Came up with a few a few responses to the hecklers. Um, there's a great interview with one of them um, who, uh, with, with Tom Harwood of GB News, one of the hecklers who ends up getting interrupted during her interview by Steve Bray, the stop Brexit man, and then complains about getting interrupted and possibly the most ironic clip I've seen. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I think we've um, we've learned that kids willing to take on this kind of battle with um, the Labour hard left and really commit to to trying to at least improve Labour's electability. Whether he's able to succeed in that is another question. Whether that translates in policy terms into a, a kind of credible offering to British voters, I think, is another thing. He certainly seems to be going for kind of fairly bread and butter issues, uh, talking a lot about criminal justice and um, and cracking down on crime specifically, which isn't something we've heard since the days of New Labour from the Labour Party. Um, and I think the kind of specific aspect of his speech where he did this, I think, you know, with a lot of people talking about how all cops are uh, not very nice people, I'll paraphrase, um, he had to kind of warm them up a little bit with a, a, a pretty harrowing story of, of his time as a prosecutor and particularly horrific crime but I think he, he seemed able to do that and carry at least a lot of the hall with him so you know think, fingers crossed that this move towards the centre continues and that Labour can actually become the effective opposition that they failed to be for so long and maybe uh, take the Tories to task on some of their, their many many failings. Mm. It was fascinating that Keir almost certainly had a bunch of pre-prepared retorts to people interrupting him and he kind of ran out of them though i think it was slogans or changing lives slogans or changing life. He just kept on saying the same line rather than coming up with 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 better and better banter it's no it's no maggie thatcher when she was interrupted um at tory at a tory party conference in the 80s and you know, let him in let him in it's always better where the tories are um to watch us applause from the audience michael you were looking back um, at some of the work you've done in a, a previous life uh, for The Independent when you were at BMG Research on people's attitudes to a Corbyn speech. And, and your initial comment to me was, geez, we're talking about a lot of the same issues, talking about energy, we're talking about um, a cost of living. But what actually kind of struck me more so than anything else was the fact that we're not talking about socialism anymore. We're not talking about nationalisation. You know, the, these aren't themes that, that Keir Starmer's hitting. Uh, and in some respects, it's actually not Keir Starmer's speech is quite boring 
um, and and not that much to talk about um, in a, in any meaningful way. It's, it's just the usual stuff about you know education, the environment, mental health, all nice things to talk about, but not um, anything groundbreaking. But it seems like what's actually missing from Keir Starmer's speech is what's most interesting um, and what differentiates him is the fact that he's this kind of relatively boring, um, new labour esque uh, leader rather than a, a Corbynite socialist lefty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the slogan that you should go with? Probably make politics boring again. I think we all probably appreciate that. But I think one of my best parts from the speech really was when he was talking about a robot in a medical facility whilst also looking quite a lot like a robot and moving like one as well. So, (laughs) yeah, look, what is this for? What What are these things for? Because they're not for the public. You know, these events, party conferences. I remember when we were preparing for them when I was doing um, warm-ups for stuff in, in the UK. Um, you know, they are elite stakeholder management. You know, they are about trying to ensure that we're demonstrating something for journalists, for decision makers, for power brokers. You know, it's about kind of getting up on those earned media opportunities, you know, the next day on Sky News and what have you. You know, most people don't watch in this, they watch conference, right? How do they consume it? They consume it in a secondary way. So they consume it through the media. It's like I've worked on several manifestos for political parties in lots of different countries. And manifestos aren't consumed by the vast majority of people, but a sense of the manifesto is kind of produced later on through stakeholders later on. So really, what is it about? Well, you know, it's not really about trying to learn something new about Keir Starmer, that's for sure. Right. So um, it's not even really about policy, certainly not this far out right, um, from an election. Um, it's about him setting up the battle with his party to say to the you know, press um, and the gallery, you know, look, I've got this under control. Right. It's it's more like the office retreat. Right. Rather than, than anything else. It's, you know. Uh, the senior management, the boss, the workers, the contractors all coming together for a few days to look forward, set the direction and a little bit of signaling on LinkedIn afterwards to say, look, how aren't we getting our act together? You know, aren't we, um, you know, put, moving forward and having kind of, you know, really sorted the party out. So, you know, what doesn't help with that is a few hecklers here and there, for sure. Just one thing there. Do you think it actually maybe helps him to have these hecklers? That it kind of helps him to have this sense in which he's taking back control of the party? That maybe, maybe it, it, on the one hand, it could be seen as chaos within the party. On the one hand, that's a sign that he's not Corbyn and that that could potentially help Michael. Yeah, look, I think look, I think it's a fair point. There's some people kind of saying whether or not it was a bit of a setup. I mean, I definitely think he planned for hecklers, right? He was, he was aware for that, right? But... Um, I think it didn't help because he's so robotic, right? He, he, he you know, I, I'm not 100% sure. I, I've heard very nice things about Keir Starmer and him being a very warm and generous person you know, in, in one-to-one situations. But unfortunately, he's not really able to kind of communicate that much beyond the pulpit, right, to kind of masses. So I think it would go better if he was better able to kind of deal with those things and think with them on his feet. But, you know... Look, I think the, the honest answer is is that what can be written up the next day is 15, 20 times more important than, you know, whether or not he mucked up on a line or whether you coughed or whether or not you read on the auto cue. You know, the, the one thing that testing things past focus groups has taught me is that any of the polling that comes out the next day immediately after a focus group is oh, has got the half-life of about, you know, 20 seconds or so. You know, it's really not going to kind of last by the end of the day. Uh, and because very few people are kind of engaged with it, 
it's and the whole event really kind of churns through the media very very quickly it's actually a lot of effort very disappointing kind of like long-term kind of gains really what it is is about establishing in the minds of the press and power brokers whether or not you have control so i think if he's if he managed to do that matthew yes you're totally right right so um you know what is his stamping his vision on the party like because the people that are going to be writing it up and explaining it to voters for the next year um, are in the room watching. Right? So that's the most important thing. Look, I think Michael was absolutely right about the primary importance of conference here being that secondary media that you get after that. And for my money, looking at a lot of the media reporting around Starmer speech specifically, and I think Labour conference more generally, I would say it's been a qualified success. A lot of the kind of rhetoric you've seen and the write-ups of this have tended to be talking about Labour setting out a plan for being serious and a few kind of left-wingers heckled him and he talked about policy areas like education and mental health and knife crime. This is all very much, you know, it, it might be boring in in the sense of, you know, in comparison to some of the the antics of, of Boris Johnson and, and his general kind of personality and politics, but this is what Labour have been needing to do ever since Corbyn came to power, right? That they, they are still, I think, for, for many people, many swing voters, perceived as being that bunch of crazy hard lefties. And the perfect antidote to that is a few prominent headlines in all the uh, various media outlets saying, you know, basically Labour are serious now and the, the kind of left wingers are the few crazy people in the audience heckling and actually you know we're talking about things like knife crime now instead of uh, plans for nationalizing Yunnan or whatever it is that Corbyn might propose so it's definitely I think been been useful in that sense for redefining brand labor yeah yeah look I think that's absolutely right I think the best outcome at this stage of the cycle is to be boring right is to to have no hiccups and to have no major um, you know, concerns that come out of it. You know, all, all, all of the party conferences in recent years that we kind of remember and know are bad ones, right? So uh, he'll have plenty of time to talk about policy. He'll have plenty of time to be able to kind of craft his own personal narrative. You know, it's not be silly to think that one event is going to do that. Um, I think the key thing at this event is just to be able to make sure it passes with relatively little kind of excitement. Um, and as you say, kind of something serious. Now, one thing about his character that won't change, it's very hard to unpick and change someone's character once it's established in the public mindset, and he's got this kind of lawyer-like kind of legalese as well, I think is that he is serious, and so he's just got to lean into that, right? You know, that's the... He's, he's never going to escape that. So I think I would agree that if I was part of Team Starmer now, this is an, a, a big win. Um, they've played it very safe, Eventually, he will need to take risks because he's up against a bombastic orator, excellent communicator. So um, in order to be able to kind of take that on, you will need to be able to kind of open yourself up more. But it's not a one-round game. You don't need to do it now. I, I do wonder, though, Michael, whether or not perhaps Kirsten can play himself out as a contrast to the, the era of chaos that is Boris Johnson. So he's entertaining. He grabs attention. Um, he, he engages. That, that's Boris's key skill. But eventually, people might realise that he's actually not that good as a, as a governor, as a leader, as someone who can actually manage the government. In fact, 
I almost think Keir Starmer might be better as in some ways on the on some of the day-to-day job of being prime minister or managing a crisis. It seems like someone who's more detail-orientated might actually read his briefs in more depth, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if, if people can be persuaded, well, Keir's, no, he's not entertaining. He, he can't beat Boris on the entertainment stakes, but maybe he can beat Boris in the competence stakes and just being kind of a little bit boring, a little bit robotic, but giving the exuding competence and the idea that you can actually get the job done might actually be the, the, the kind of message to spotlight. Yeah, and that, I think that is actually the... The, one of the only and perfect pitches that a Starmer-led kind of Labour government can kind of put forward, right? So if we look, think about the 1997, after however many years of kind of Tory sleaze and incompetence, you know, basically kind of like Blair government came in on one which was compassionate, but also basically composed, right? So, and that was the major pitch. So certainly that's what they're angling for. You can tell in the tone and the delivery and also the write-ups that it's really, the, you know, I think the main attack on Boris was something along the lines of, you know, um, not so serious or, or not so um, ambitious or whatever, but, you know, it wasn't really kind of attacking his character. He's basically saying he's a nice person. Rec- in recognition that there's a strong emotional connection to uh, the Prime Minister. So, you know, and woe betide anyone that kind of attacks that. So, yeah, 100% competence will kind of be part of that. But um, regardless, for, to, for people to jump, they need to kind of know that you're on their side. He will need to kind of humanise his robotic style, uh, you know, in the next couple of years in order to be able to kind of make people comfortable with that as well. Mm. I wonder to what extent we we think that the kind of side things, the the, the ones the media gets very excited about, the um, the divisions within the Labour Party, you know, Corbyn going around or the the arguments between the Corbyns, between Pierce and Jeremy or um, the kind of trans issue that came up about you know how do you how do you define women um do we do we think that's ultimately going to undermine labor it's just going to make them sound a bit a bit crazy a bit like not focused on the issues that matter or do we think these are all just you know, inside the beltway issues to, to borrow an americanism that in the end no one's going to care that much about them how, how do we think that these kind of cultural things i guess the, the culture wars end up playing out for labor yeah and um, look i think the cultural wars obviously don't end up playing well for Labour because most people vote on social values and and we're in a conservative country. The UK is a conservative country on values. And so the only time that people basically are willing to kind of jump off from that is, as you mentioned, is on the competence-related issues and basically where they feel that like Labour are kind of socially conservative enough to be able to take that on. You know, there's a lot of good slogans that came out of the new Labour about being tough on crime and tough on cause, the causes of crime and what have you for a reason. But I think... I think, no, Labour, for the length of the Labour Party, there's been divisions in every party conference that's ever been. There's always been talk about divisions within the Labour Party. The Labour Party, as the Conservative Party, is a coalition of different groups of voters that have come together to win an election, right? So um, it just so happens that the left tend to be a bit more fractured. I wouldn't say the, the... this the woke class of the Labour Party are the best advert for its brand, right? And certainly think that that it was the that was the attempt, you know, in Labour Party conference to to show that something's being dealt done to deal with that um, this conference. But you know, uh, broadly speaking, parties are coalitions, and you people make particularly in the middle, they make their decisions on broad. Uh, based things sometimes on policy sometimes a gut feel about the leader and whether or not it's kind of worth the change and at the moment most people are going to be sticking with boris 
and um, the only right way they would change is if they feel it was something materially beneficial for them in it for them, or they felt that the competence of the party was there, regardless of the kooks that are kind of in what part of the party. There's always kooks in every. I feel like there's a way for Labour to kind of have their cake and eat it when it comes to managing this, the, the more socially progressive group of, of activists and things like, as, as you say, Matthew, trans issues, for example, where they might view that as one of the primary concerns with their politics, whereas, of course, that just simply does not chime with the vast majority of British voters. And the way to do that, and I think Keir has started to do this at least, is is kind of cover that flank by talking about things like uh, like being cracking down on crime and, and knife crime and, and things like that. And that tends to be, I mean, that was the takeaway when it comes to the, the popular media reporting about that matter, right? But you can still have a lot of those um, progressive activists, you know, doing what they usually do on, on Twitter and appealing to that particular um, segment of the population that do actually share those those sort of values. And of course, you know, when it comes to something like um, like trans rights, you're going to see an awful lot of young people that are actually on the, the quote-unquote woke side of that debate and actually do find that sort of rhetoric appealing. It's just that, you know, the, the ones that don't, um, and that is, of course, many people, that they're not the ones that are going to be uh, looking out for, for that sort of thing on Twitter, or if, if they are, it's going to be a kind of, you know, they'll, they'll see a retweet on their timeline of a particularly egregious example of someone saying something ridiculous on the issue and, and get very vexed and worked up about that. But that's always going to happen, right? Um, that you, There's no real way for Labour to, to avoid that. Well, on that note about issues that, that Labour um, is avoiding or, or perhaps can't avoid, one that they certainly should be focusing a lot more on is housing. The Adam Smith Institute's latest paper, co-published with uh, very good friends at CT Local, analyzes a groundbreaking new poll about attitudes in the UK towards housing reform. The report was co-authored by my wonderful fellow podcasters for this episode, Matthew and Michael. Uh, and I'll go to you, Michael, on this first. We've obviously talked a lot about housing on this podcast before, but this is the first kind of, I think, really in-depth exploration of attitudes to reform and, and how we might actually achieve change given political constraints. Why is it that planning reform is such a politically challenging issue? Yeah, it's um, it's a real pickle, isn't it? Because of all the vested interests and stuff. So, yeah, I, I think th this was this was um, quite a rewarding project to kind of work on in the end. I must admit, and um, it's it's obviously a challenge, and I, and we fully understand that. But the polling is fascinating because ultimately, end of the day, it's vested interests which kind of lock people out of the housing market. But at the same time, it's just turning that on its head and saying, well. Can we make incentivize people to, you know, be a bit more self interested in it and kind of reward people for um, accepting kind of more homes in their community? And lo and behold, people do um, respond to that and are able to kind of take that on. So, you know, look, I think the the striking thing about this um, piece of research really is that that NIMBYs can be persuaded um, if they've kind of crafted the right arguments uh, if. Um, it's about kind of improving their lives, um, you know, in their communities and kind of providing them with more services and more investment. So, you know, I was really kind of pleased um, that we were able to kind of identify kind of a strategy. Um, it's not to say that there aren't kind of pitfalls. Clearly, you know, there are a lot of potential negatives there. 
you know, with, if you know, it's going to lead to kind of more congested roads, if it's going to change the community and what have you in a, in a negative way. And the other thing as well is that I think that people need to be a bit braver and kind of start to include pe- locals into the planning process a bit more. Um, and by doing so, I think they're going to be pleasantly surprised rather than, um, you know, coming up with negative outcomes. So I was very pleased with this in the end, um, you know, as it kind of really kind of shows a bit of a pathway forward there and lots of interesting policies that we tested, which, you know, unsurprisingly came out um, quite well. Mm. I, I think what the, the research really kind of debunks is that the central theme when it comes to planning reform, which is this idea that it's a bit of a devil's bargain. So on the one hand, you have a lot of young, frustrated people paying way too much of their income in rent, unable to afford a home, their pro-housing development. But on the other hand, on the other side of that, you have the majority of people that, who, you know, 55 to 60% of people in the country already own a home, they fundamentally get nothing. Um, in the first instance, out of more people going in there, NIMBYism in some ways is, is, from a political economy perspective, quite rational. Why would you want more people on your roads creating congestion? Why would you want more people at your schools? I um, mean, the class sizes are bigger uh, and mean the facilities aren't as good. Why would you want more people in, in your hospitals, et cetera, et cetera? In, in the first instance, if you're an existing homeowner, that there's no incentive add on top of that, the fact that you don't want the, the value of your asset to go down. And you can see this in the polling to a large extent, actually, which is... Um, Young people who don't own homes are far more supportive of housing and, and building more homes. Um, and, and people who do want homes um, don't want to see the value of their property go down. They're not going to support more housing if it's not some way in their benefit. So therefore, what that really highlights, uh, as Michael was saying there, is it's about how you can kind of flip the message as well as ensure the policy aligns with benefiting existing homeowners when you're building more homes. So if, if building more homes means congestion, if it means a lower housing price, if it means... Um, more pressure on public services, you're going to get people being opposed to it. But on the other hand, and and if and we tested this quite extensively, if more homes means um, more people living and working in the community, reducing the overall cost of living, um, lowers rents, and, and key to this is investment in local services, um, you're going to get much higher levels of support. So it is possible to turn a lot of NIMBYs into YIMBYs. It is possible to persuade people and, and get kind of a majority for more house building as long as you persuade people that it is in their benefit um, and that they're engaged with them and have something to say. And this is where I think in some respects um, that the current attempt at housing reform from Jenrick was was a, a bit of a... Um, problematic strategy because it created this perception that they were taking away local control, that, that, that you would no longer have a say on what houses would be in your area. And instead, you'd have these these targets thrust upon you. And that's what drove, I think, a lot of the opposition to this. So, and and I think the SI and, and our friends at um, uh, the Yimby Alliance, particularly John Myers, has made this point for a long time. And it really, in some ways, substantiates this point that you need local people to be able to have a say and they need to feel like they're going to benefit from it. Um, people, you know, ultimately, the people are self-interested, um, and you, if you want to, if you want to build more homes, you've got to, you've got to sell that to existing homeowners because otherwise, they're going to have a, a democratic um, ability for, for better or for worse. You know, we might make a libertarian argument saying, you know, you're going a bit soft, Matthew. Shouldn't people be able to do whatever they like on their property? I think to a large extent, that's probably true from a philosophical perspective. Although there are negative externalities from you building, you know, a tall building you meet or more people being in my area, and you've got to appreciate that people have a concern as well as maybe stylistic concern or whatever else it may be. Different people have different concerns that are, that are driving them. 
Yeah, I, look, I think there's another component to this as well, which is that you know, I think we alluded to in the previous conversation, you know, the culture wars and intergenerational differences and what have you. I think where that is actually manifest, like in real life, affecting people's kind of pockets is in housing, right? There is, you know, the, the asset class, right, for the boomers and millennials and Gen Z can never even think about kind of owning a home right now. And I think one of the interesting things about this was actually confronting that, just saying to people, look, essentially, are you concerned about adult children continuing to live in their home? You know, it's a shocking statistic, 18 to 34-year-olds still living at home with their parents, at their parents' feet. You know, it's not a good statistic. We should not be, we should, we should all be ashamed of that, right? And we should be looking to get that down. So I think that it, it, it delays life. It delays responsibility. It delays, you know, getting on and uh, starting a family. It delays understanding the value of a pound, right? It, it, it delays so many things in life. And so actually, once you make that argument to people, particularly the argument about keeping families together in communities and also kind of, you know, making sure that, you know, children can kind of fly the nest, um, it, it's, um, it, that is also a productive one. I might add it's slightly less so than the direct incentives, as you might expect, because for some people only the pound will, will do, right, or improve in their community. But but it is still an argument that people are willing to kind of wrestle with. So um, this was really quite a heartwarming piece of research also, because what it does suggest is that there are ways forward in kind of bridging this intergenerational divide um, in a moral sense, but also kind of in a, from an asset sense as well. So um, very, very pleased with that outcome. I think the other interesting thing about this was just putting some hard numbers around the kind of different populations, right? NIMBYs are a small group. There's not a huge number of them. I think we we worked out about 13, 14%, right, of the population are are NIMBYs. YIMBYs, yes, in my backyard, yes, I want more house building. I think it's really important. I want it in my my local community. More than double that population, you know, basically about a third of the country. Um, are yimbies and there are always going to be people who are blockers you know they're people that are just generally miserable probably and you know, don't want any development generally in their community so so you know they're always going to be people who just don't want more development and never want it and you're never going to change that right so i think it's also kind of important for us to kind of think about the numbers here the, the number of people who want more homes is growing right as and that is an opportunity and that's why it, this research is so powerful in the sense that well a large portion of the, that group who do not have an asset are also potentially willing to change how they vote in order to be able to make sure that they you know uh, can secure a home for themselves as well just uh, just a quick aside before we move on to um, the kind of electoral benefits of potentially building more homes the fact that there are more yimbies in at least the, this research has found than there are either blockers or, or NIMBYs is for me a really interesting lesson in in kind of political economy because it, it seems to be a very good refutation of the concern about the tyranny of the majority when it comes to democracies right you've got a, a fairly small group of, of the uh, you know and these people do vote um, but they, they are able to, to influence um, political incentives in a completely disproportionate way. And, and Daniel, it, it won't surprise you that we found that the, the NIMBY class of people are the most likely to have engaged with the planning system with respect to having yeah. put in an objection. Um, most YIMBYs don't, uh, and, and passives are, uh, don't really engage as much, are, are far less likely to show up at a community meeting or talk to people about it. 
Um, so I should say they talk to people about it, but they don't show up actively. Um, and it's that classic, you know, political thing. Decisions are made by those who show up. And people who oppose more housing area are just far more likely to go along to that meeting um, to oppose it and, and make their voice heard. While the people who support the housing, who might actually be a similar number, you know, we, we, in the poll, generally speaking, we found uh, it was just like 36% of people don't want more housing locally. 38% people do want more housing locally. So you would expect when there's a development comes up, it would be 50-50. You'd, you'd have one person in favour, one person against. Of course, that never happens because those who turn up are the ones who oppose it. Whilst those who are quietly sitting at home are the ones who would support more housing, but perhaps have actually got a job to go to. They've got other things going on in their life. They're young. Um, they're professionals. They're young families, who the kind of people who just don't have time to engage in politics. In the same way that we found a lot of the older people who oppose housing um, are probably less likely to be full-time employed probably in the later stages of their life. So therefore, they're far more likely to engage with, with local democracy. Um, and therefore, the voices of Yimbis aren't being heard. Yeah, you kind of got this weird catch-22 where because you don't own a home, you don't feel as much of a stake in your local community. So you don't go along to the planning meetings and influence your local community to build more homes. It's not a really an ideal situation. I think that's perfect. I definitely 100% agree with that. But one thing I want to say is that it's still an equal number. So when we looked at those people who switched, right? so we did this experimental design basically to kind of see who actually did end up going switching their vote to the Conservatives in this instance, but the people are still willing to build switch to Labour if Labour build homes as well. I think um, it, the interesting thing that we saw was is that homeowners are equal in number to um, in, in their switching behaviour, right? So obviously they account for a larger portion, so a smaller share of homeowners that end up switching, right? But um, they accounted for a similar portion of the actual switches. So the argument that, you know, this the only people that are going to be switching are those that actually directly benefit is also not true. It's going to be those people who are responsive to the argument about intergenerational inequalities as well. So, you know, um, it's going to be people who have kids, you know, adult children living at home, but probably want them bloody out of the house, right? So um, so I think that, um, you know, it, it, it really is kind of like spread everywhere. It's not 100% entirely about um, just making sure that we incentivize them. Although, you know, the, the Thatcherites within the Conservative Party would say that look, if we make people richer, then, you know, by giving them an asset as such, as such then they'll continue to be conservative. No, I think in this instance, it is more to what you're saying, Daniel, which is actually it's about giving people a stake. It's about people, giving people responsibility, right? If you're living at home with mum and dad, right, you're not, your name's not on the, the, the utility bill. You don't know what the cost of switching to a net, net zero is, right, on the energy bill because you're not paying the bill, right? You, so you, you need to be able to be take some responsibility and having a home paying a mortgage, rooting people in a place, encourages stability, encourages family life, encourages people to be able to have a stake in the, their local community and therefore want, um, you know, um, probably to value things which are more orientated towards the Conservatives. So their interests are aligned in this. It's just about... Um, it's, it's really in the means. The ends are really kind of universally um, uh, admired and kind of demanded. So we've got through this polling and research a much better understanding of what it is that drives or could drive people to potentially support building more homes. But what does that translate into in, in raw policy terms? What are the, the policies that can give people more of a, a benefit or a return, whether that's um, you know financial or, or in terms of community infrastructure etc from home building that would actually translate into these sort of vote switching behaviors that um, 
the experiments that you've run suggest might happen maybe matthew is there anything to street votes for example this seems to be the perfect fit for all of this um all of this stuff yeah so just just generally on the on the principle of, of why housing reform can be so electorally beneficial and that's more or less because there's a lot of like basically lib deb labor young voters who have been locked out of housing and um, the 75 percent of people who want to buy a home in the next five years aren't sure they're going to be able to afford it um and a lot of them are willing to switch, or even if a small number of them are willing to switch, a few points here or there has has big electoral implications um, for whatever party. So that the Tories um, have the most potential to benefit um, as a result of a commitment to build more homes and, and a commitment to build a substantial number of new homes. Now, in another part of the poll, we were kind of interested in separately to that, that kind of interrelated, what are the kind of things that might be popular? What are the, what are the proposals that could be popular? Um, and you kind of find the, the most popular things are the classic ones, you know, building on brownfield land, um, which is nice. Uh, it's it's something everyone wants to do. It's not necessarily going to solve the solution by itself. Allowing homes to be built on unused public lands, got a lot of support. Um, allowing villages to build homes nearby. Allowing farmers, um, if they commit to change a lot of their um, property to green land, making twenty five percent of it into housing. Um, you've also got. Um, things like allowing the conversion presumed permission to convert local offices or high streets um also get moderately strong support with with respect to street votes um there, there's there is um some just for that in fact much stronger support than opposition for that so you get 46 percent of people open to street votes which is this idea that the asi pushes quite a lot which is basically that people on a street should be able to opt to um all agree collectively under kind of a, a very narrow neighborhood plan um, to increase the, their density, let's say, add an extra story, and therefore everyone is that property value goes up at the same time. Everyone benefits from from it, and it's also a local democracy. So you're not overriding; you're actually creating some, some local sense. You only get you get 46 percent of people swing that, 23 percent oppose. Another one that's been talked about recently is is automatic condition for mansards. This is particularly a London thing, which is that the kind of um, <coughs> So a lot of spot for mansards, um, which is which is more of kind of a, a London thing in particular, but also in some other cities where you, you build a kind of little uh, boxy kind of extension on top of your property. That gets struck quite strong support at 58% in support and at 15% oppose. Um, we find that people don't really want to build on the green belt, but interesting enough, when we ask them what the green belt is, it won't surprise you to hear that most people don't know what it is. 52% of people have the wrong impression of the green belt. Um, 14% of people aren't sure. Only one third of people actually know what it is. Um, so, so although it's unpopular, it was interesting actually. In one sense, we haven't talked about as much is just the fact that um, design didn't seem to be the key issue here. So, just putting in place design codes doesn't necessarily make um, people like spot housing, and people um, have mixed views when it comes to architecture. So despite the impression that everyone kind of wants traditionalist architecture, um, in fact, a lot of people are perfectly okay with modernist architecture, particularly younger people. It's kind of a, a bit of a young, old divide in terms of what aesthetic you prefer. So it's not necessarily about architecture as much as it is about having control, having a benefit to you as a person um, uh, from the housing development, uh, even if it's kind of a more modern architecture. As long as it's not you know, brutalist and, and you know, revolting, you can still get um, support for it. Yeah, that's a shame for me. I'm a big fan of Brutalist architecture, but I was very happy with that result, actually, because I, I always found the kind of uh, overly focus, overt focus on design in the housing debate to be just a little bit odd. You kind of get libertarians talking about the importance of very trad architecture. It just it doesn't seem like uh, something that, that really fits necessarily with the rest of the political philosophy. But just a couple of other takeaways on the specific policies that I found interesting. You mentioned Brownfield being perhaps unsurprisingly, the most popular. And it's a perennial frustration of mine because 
you know, the housing crisis is mainly a crisis of specific places in the UK that are very expensive to live. I mean, there is basically almost no viable brownfield land in and around London that has not had some sort of development on it already. It's very rare that you find viable brownfield development land, especially that hasn't already got, you know, important amenities, for example, um, or doesn't have very high decontamination costs from the the post-industrial uh, aspect of it. But the, the kind of flip side of this, the, the thing that I was most positively surprised about was actually if the polling around the government's um, planning white paper and, and specifically um, the zoning system that was proposed in that. Now, I was you know, under the impression that this was something that the government thought they could get away with despite you know general public opposition, never mind the Tory backbenchers, but they, they just thought, okay, you know, this is such an urgent crisis. We'll try and get something through and hopefully we'll be forgiven um, in a few years' time by the people that can actually move into these houses. Turns out 60% of people supporting it, you know, that a majority of people agree with those proposals, at least in principle. Now, I'm sure if you kind of delved into some of the specific details or perhaps um, phrased it in terms of, would you be happy if the government's white paper caused an extra, you know, 10 houses to be built right next to your house? You might get slightly different results. Um, but but the broad kind of, you know, acceptance that something needs to be done is actually, I think, very, very um, encouraging for people on the housing reform side of things. You know, I thought the numbers would be even lower when it came to, to Greenbelt stuff as well. Um, you know, I, I thought maybe 5%. I thought it was just kind of people on this podcast, basically, that are interested in building on the Greenbelt. It turns out it's more than just people that appear on this podcast. Um, and of course, I think that's unlikely to happen, but it, it's just indicative of a, of a more of a, a groundswell of major, of public support for good housing reforms than I thought was the case beforehand. So thank you for cheering me up by writing this paper. Of course, that was your, the main aim from both of you, I'm sure. Always always try to maximize your utility, Dan. That's, that's my goal in life. Yep. The utility monster, that's what they call me. Um, and on that wonderful note, um, I will have to draw things to a close because we are running low on time. But thank you very much for listening to the Adam Smith Institute's Pin Factory podcast if you like what you've heard then please do rate us and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast providers it's been an absolute pleasure to do this with my co-host and uh, head of research matthew lesh and dr michael turner the head of research at ct group and a fellow at the asi until next week please do tune in for our next pin factory episode for more banter analysis mm-hmm.